0: Good morning. My name is Mark Miller. I'm one of the elders here at Baseline Community Church and uh, we're so glad you're joining us for worship this morning for a time in God's Word. A reminder, we'll gather at 11 o'clock via Zoom to reflect, connect, and pray. Um, That link is on the webpage. We are in a continuing series looking at snapshots in the narrative in the Book of Acts. Um, Trying to understand better what God wants to do in us and what he wants to do and work through us as a church for such a time as this That's our sermon series title and it continues to feel more than appropriate and this morning We come to um, what I think is one of the most dramatic narratives in the entire book and that is Paul's harrowing voyage on what would be his final missionary journey Uh, to Rome. I've long wanted to dig into this and reflect on it and preach on it ever since a sermon back in 2014 by my friend and pastor, um, Reed Jolly. It happened right as I was beginning my own journey with cancer and it still sticks in my mind. I'm sure I'll draw from that message this morning. And the second reason is I've always had a love for sailing, both before I was married and after I was married and now in our family not so much recently but there are lots of sailing stories to tell tempted to tell them but i won't for one there's not the time and number two any story i would tell would pale by comparison with the one that we'll explore this morning now you recall last week that don um, highlighted one particular moment in acts 23 where paul while captive in the Roman barracks is visited by the Lord Jesus and the Lord Jesus ministers to him and in verse 23:11, he says to Paul take courage remember that take courage that'll be our memory verse for the message take courage as you have testified about me in Jerusalem so you must testify about me in Rome take courage the Latin word is cur which stands for heart take heart Jesus, in essence, offering and pouring his heart, his courage, into Paul for this great missionary journey. That's Acts 23. So you fast forward to Acts 28, and there Luke will write, and then we finally arrived in Rome. Five chapters. Now, last week, Don took us through some events from chapters 23 to 26, where... Paul experienced a riot. There was a plot against his life. There was a severe beating. There were trials with Festus and Felix, his transfer to, to prison and house arrest in Caesarea. And he appeals as a Roman citizen to be tried in Rome, and that request is granted. And that, then, is where we'll pick up the story. And you'll see, if this works, the map of these five legs of his journey. The first, a brief jaunt up the coast to Sidon, then over to Myra, A large port where he'll change ships, and they will head south to Crete. They'll make it around the eastern tip to a port called Fair Havens. They'll make a run to see if they can get to Phoenix in time to winter there, and what we'll find is that that does not happen, and they are carried by a storm and shipwrecked until finally, in the fifth leg, he will make it to Rome. And that's where we'll pick up the story, beginning in Acts 27, not in Rome, but the beginning of this journey. We'll learn that Paul and the other prisoners are placed in the custody of a Roman centurion named Julius. As you can guess, a centurion was a commander of a hundred men. And with Paul, we learn is Aristarchus, his partner in ministry. And of course, Luke, who's the author of the book. And they board a ship that hails from Adramidium and head up the coast and make a brief stop in Sidon. And for some unusual reason, Paul is given leave. The implication of the scripture is that he might be ill. And he's taken care of by his friends and in verse 4 then they reboard and leave Sidon and head along the coast until they get to Myra so Myra is a large bustling port lots of big ships in and out this is a main hub where the roman empire right would have grain and cargo ship from all parts of the empire in the mediterranean africa and all would wind up coming through ports like Myra so there they would find an Alexandrian ship that was headed for Rome. Now unlike the previous ship that headed along the coast, which was making stops along the way, that would have been what in sailing terms we call call a port hopper, one that makes stops along the way. But as they boarded this ship in Alexandria, it's big, it's heavy, it's slow, it's clunky. It is designed to go into deep water. It's heavy. It has a single mass, and so all of the weight is at the, the base of that mass that sways in the wind. Not really meant to tack. It's basically meant to go downwind, which is fine as long as you're heading downwind. In verse 6 and 7, they board this ship, and it says in verse 7, They sailed slowly for many days as the winds were against them, sailing south to Crete, until they arrived at a port called Fair Havens. And it says in verse 9 that a great amount of time had passed, and it was now after the fast. And that refers to the Day of Atonement, one of the Jewish holidays, which, according to the Jewish lunar calendar, would have put this around sometime in early October. Of course, by common sense, a very dangerous time to sail, as at any point unsuspecting storms could could, uh, careen across the Mediterranean. Well, the ship owner and and captain decide that the port of fair havens is not so fair. I don't know if it was the accommodations or nightlife or whatever, but they decide that they want to make a run to the further western port of Phoenix and try and winter there. That's what they wanted to do. And in that moment, Paul stands up, verse 10, and says, Gentlemen, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss. Strong words from a prisoner. Now we might think, you know, what does Paul, the apostle Paul, we thought he was a tent maker. What does he know about sailing? Well, the answer is quite a bit. If you look at the New Testament, there's probably somewhere around 11 voyages that he has made, probably over 3,500 miles. He's been shipwrecked twice. He references spending a night and a day in the deep. So he knows sailing. He knows the Mediterranean. So he makes his case and the centurion sides with the ship owner and off they go trying to make it to phoenix and in verse 13 i love how it says this it says when a gentle breeze presumably from the south began to blow softly they put out to sea and sailed close to crete on the windward side then in verse 14 it says and i love this shortly after sailing a tempestuous wind The NIV describes it as a hurricane force wind called a nor'easter. Why? Because it's coming from the north and the east. On Crete, Mount Ida rises 8,000 feet and shoots straight down into the ocean. And so there they are, setting along gently, and then bam, this storm comes right down from the north and drives them along. It swoops down, they are unable to make headwind, head into the wind, and so they gave way to it, it says in verse 13, and we're driven along. And then chaos. Verse 16, they're towing their lifeboat. You can imagine how heck is it, that is in the, in this dangerous storm that's that they're in the center of. So they bring the lifeboat in. Verse 17, the sailors pull cables around the ship in sailing terms to keep it from falling apart. This is in sailing terms called frapping the ship. Verse 17, fearing they'd run aground. And to stabilize the ship, they drop what we call dragging sea anchors. We used to call them floppy anchors into the sea. Verse 18, they're taking such a violent battering that they begin to jettison some of the cargo. So much for the FedEx deliveries. And then finally in verse 19, they begin to actually throw the ship's tackle overboard. And then in verse 20, it says, When neither sun or stars had appeared for many days, the storm continued raging. Remember, they can't tack. They can't sail around it they can't sail through it where it goes they go and finally it says in verse 20 they gave up all hope of being saved we'll pause there for a second and sit with that lost in a storm no hope sounds familiar we think of luke 8 or mark 4 you're familiar with the story the disciples are in a boat They decide to head over to the other side of the lake jesus is asleep falls asleep in the stern a furious storm crashes down upon them they fear for their lives they're terrified they wake him up jesus master don't you care that we're perishing jesus gets up he chides them for their faith and he calms the storm but before we get on our high horse about looking at the disciples we have to be honest Does it feel that way doesn't it feel that way even now I mean here we are on one hand trying to hold on to Jesus promise that he will never leave us or forsake us and on the other hand we look at our circumstances water coming in over the side in so many areas of life and we say Lord where are you why don't you care help don't you see what's happening it says in Acts 27 that verse then they gave up all hope of being saved And who comes center stage but Paul verse 21 he says men you should have listened to me you would have spared yourself this damage and loss but now I urge you to keep up your courage there's that word what's our memory verse take courage keep up your courage because not one of you will be destroyed how does Paul know this verse 23 an angel of God Hear this: an angel of God, whose an angel of the God whose I am and who I serve, spoke to me. Do not be afraid. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. Not a life will be lost. But we must run aground on some island. I love that wonderful thing to hear on a cruise we pause for a moment, we begin to think about the Apostle Paul. Sometimes when we read what he has written in his letters, we tend to think he's some sort of on a different spiritual plane, that somehow he's got this spiritual bubble rising above it all, or he's sort of sitting back there in the director's chair, just sort of taking this all in peacefully. I don't think that's the case. No, like everyone else, he's probably saying, Lord, you gave me a promise to testify in Rome. Well, Rome is that way, and we're heading this way. I understand taking a long way around to avoid a storm but not taking the long way around while I'm stuck in the storm and we don't have the run up to his speech here where he, give this, he gives us encouragement but we have to presume that he did what we have to do he brings the situation to the Lord the promise that he'd received in one hand and the chaos that he sees on the other and says Lord what's the deal you've made this promise and we have to imagine in that moment that he holds on to that promise and yet once again, experiences God's pouring out, Jesus pours out and says, what take courage. And in that moment, then that's what enables him to pass that same encouragement onto the others with unbelievable boldness. One of my favorite quotes, no matter what's going on around us, the center of God's will, Fellowship with Christ is always the safest place we can be, no matter what. So, verse twenty-seven it says, after fourteen nights. Now, think about that—two weeks of this, two weeks of being carried along by the storm. At midnight, the sailors sense they're near land, and they take soundings. So, they put a piece of lead on a rope or a cable and drop it down to see what the depth is. The first measurement is is um, twenty fathoms. A fathom is about the the length of a man's um, arm span. The second one is 15, so they know they're nearing some sort of shallower water. And in this moment, of course, that's at midnight, and so what they do is they drop sea anchors again to slow the ship so they can wait till dawn, and in kind of a dramatic moment, some of the sailors, of all things, pretend they're dropping, of all people, drop a, what they think is um, an anchor aside, but it's really the lifeboat trying to escape from the ship. Paul sees this and says to the commander, Julius, Unless all stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. It's one of the early Army-Navy conflicts, by the way. So Julius and the soldiers cut the lifeboat loose. And then in verse 33, then again, just before dawn, it says, Paul takes center sage and encourages them. There's that word again. After 14 days, he encourages them to eat and reminds them, and this is a quote from verse 33, not one of, not, not one of you will lose... A single hair from your head and they were all encouraged and they ate in verse 38 it says they threw the rest of the wheat overboard to lighten the ship and there were an interesting number Luke tells us there were 276 people on board the ship dawn arrives out in the distance they see a bay with a beach they have no idea where they are they decide to go for it so they let the anchors go in the sea, cut loose the rudder, hoist the mainsail, all eyes forward, and they head for the beach. What happens? Stri- smack dab into a sandbar, and the prow gets stuck. And in verse 20:33, uh, it says um, that the bow be stuck fast, and the waves violently begin to break up the ship. And then in this other chaotic moment in verse 42, the soldiers pull out their swords. They're ready to kill the prisoners because Roman law stated that if you were accompanying a prisoner and the prisoner escaped, the sentence that was upon the prisoner was upon you. So the soldiers are pulling out their swords and Julius at this point stops it and commands all to stand down. Convinced of Paul's importance, he stopped the soldier's plan. Then he commands all of the ship to jump into the water and swim if they can. And if not, grab a plank and make, make their way to shore. And I love how chapter 27 ends. Verse 44, and so it was, and so it was that they were all brought safely to land. I love how the King James puts it. And so it came to pass that they all arrived safely. You know, I can go back to a lot of scenes or think about a lot of scenes in biblical history that I would have loved to have been a part of or loved love to see, I guess, and this would be one of them, right? All 276 of them gasping, cold, soaked, tired, but all there, and their eyes move to the Apostle Paul. Well, the island is Malta, and in chapter 28, we get more details of Paul's journey. They make a fire. There's a poisonous snake in the fire that jumps up and bites Paul. He shakes it off. They meet some friendly natives. Paul heals their leader. There's another ship, another couple hundred miles. They land in Syria, Syracuse. Then Poswoli, another hundred-mile trip by foot. And Paul will make it to Rome. And that's where Luke, in the book of Acts, will leave him. And hear this verse from Acts 28. Acts 28, 30. It says that he, Paul, welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's always important for us to be asking ourselves these questions. What is the scripture saying to me? How do I find myself in this story? Why is this in the Bible? Why does, you know, why is this, why does Luke go into such great detail here? Does he want us to be impressed that he made it through? Is he a great storyteller? Is it somehow an allegory about the anchors or false anchors in our life? Is it somehow a picture of the church? Well, maybe. But the core lesson seems to be this. Luke wants us to marvel at Paul's safe conduct to Rome, and not just that God's promise is fulfilled, but how it is fulfilled. That after receiving the promise, each circumstance that he faces seems to make fulfillment of that promise seem more and more unlikely and impossible, and yet it arrives. The point is that God's plans no matter how incomprehensible, always come to fruition. The theological term for this is providence. Now we suppose Luke could have just told us that, but instead he shows us in the narrative that nothing in our lives, nothing in Paul's life happened without God's command or God's permission. And building on Don's points last week about the character and the promise of God that we can trust, We can also trust god's wise and loving uh, providence we all have plans you look at old journals you look at old letters you lay out a road map right we'll grow up I'll, i'll go to college maybe start a career get married start a family buy a condo buy a house buy a bigger house kids will leave maybe retire smaller house travel grandkids one day you know things wind down crawl into your hammock take a nap and die peacefully in your sleep that's our roadmap clear path no hills no valleys no bandits no storms smooth sailing suns out gentle winds why is this in the bible because god's providence while protective is not insular it's perfect but it's not pleasant god god's providence is not just about where god wants to take us but how he wants to take us there, and most importantly, get this, how he wants to be more fully formed in us through that process. That's what God's providence is all about. No one at age 30 says, you know, I think right about when I'm retiring, about bout with cancer would be good for me. You know, I think a time of financial hardship and unemployment, a season of that, would be good in my life. You know, honey, a season of intense family conflict and turmoil is exactly what we need. I'd like to try something different for my graduation, like not have one, or weddings, or funerals, or, you know, later in my teaching career, I'd really like to try and teach kindergartners virtually. I think that'd be really interesting. Or, you know, what would be really good for our church is to have to shut the campus down for a while and socially distance. Um, you know, that might be really good for us as a church. Let's put that in the strategic plan. You get my drift. The storms that we face, and I could go on. But that is the point of this narrative. God's providence. Think about Paul in Acts 23. He's given this promise that he will testify in Rome, and he might have said, okay, a nice five to six week journey, right, along the coast, spending time with Aristarchus, catching up on readings, maybe a little shuffleboard, but what does he get? He gets, from chapters 23 to 28, warnings, afflictions, a riot, beatings, stonings, a pilot, a plot to take his life, two years in prison at Caesarea, trials before Festus, Felix, Agrippa, a first ship, a second ship, 14 days in a storm, a crash landing, a swim, a poisonous snake, another ship, a 140-mile journey, and yet he makes it. And once there, house arrest. But there he is, at the end of Acts, testifying writing and we are the recipients of some of his most powerful letters written from Rome Ephesians Philippians Colossians to name a few what does Luke do he writes the very narrative that we're reading what did God use to bring Paul to Rome to paraphrase a commentator God used Christians and non-Christians, Roman law and Roman corruption, justice and injustice, Jews, Gentiles, good weather, bad weather, the dream of Rome and the nightmare of a storm, an indecisive centurion, a stupid ship owner and captain, God used it all, and here's the main point, so that we who encounter this passage now in the middle of our storms can see that God's plans, his loving purpose will always prevail and that his purpose no matter how unclear and painful will ultimately be for our good that's why this is in the Bible I was on a zoom call this earlier this week doing some training with the protective services supervisors from up north and I asked him a focus question just at the beginning I said you know can you think of a situation where somebody in these difficult and trying moments and I can't tell you how difficult it is to do child protection in this environment that's a story for another day. But I just asked if they had seen an inspirational moment where somebody really exhibited leadership and one of the women said, yes, um, we had this really difficult situation and the manager you know, made the decision and, and we asked, you know, are you worried about this or how do you think this is gonna turn out? And the manager had a great quote, which I guess is pretty common. He says, you know, we shouldn't worry because somehow it's going to come out to be some version of okay some version of okay it's a great line well the truth is we want our version of okay but the difficult and yet undeniable lesson from this scripture is that God's version of okay will always be for our best and that's why Paul could write in Romans 8 that familiar passage that we all know if we know that in all things God works together for good for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose his purpose to have the character of Christ shaped more fully in us even through the most difficult and trying times and you know this you've seen this some of you know this firsthand you uh, many in our congregation have endured tremendous trials and challenges and if you're honest you say to yourself I could never go through that I could never make it through that. But because you interact with them as you listen and encounter them, and because of the way they have leaned into and relied on the encouragement of Christ, remember our passage, our memory verse, take courage because they've leaned in to that encouragement. They have experienced a deeper walk with him, even in their pain and suffering. And you see and experience a a sacramental acceptance, and a deep intimacy with the Lord that again, if you're honest, you long to have. That is the work of the encouragement of Christ. Why is is this in the Bible? Because that's what he longs for all of us to have. So that we can more fully trust in his purpose and his providence, his faithfulness in the storms. Hear this, trusting in his promises that no matter what, no matter how incomprehensible they are, they are always trustworthy and that God's plans for our lives will always be more elaborate, intricate, wonderful, and yes, painful and challenging than anything we can imagine. And the second thing this passage teaches us is that we can never realize this on our own. Our only source of hope does not come from within ourselves. Our only source of courage, is our living hope, the one who invites us to take his courage, his heart, inside us. Take courage. And we have that as our anchor for the soul. He's he's the only one. You know, when you you encounter people that go through difficult times, you could never say, you know, I know what you're going through. So I've learned never to say that. But there is one that does and always will know what we're going through, and that's Jesus. Why? Why? Because he went through the greatest storm of all eternity for us so we take courage and when I think of that when I think of that take courage I'm reminded of communion take and eat take and drink this is my body this is my blood it's the storm he went through for you and me so that we could trust in his loving prov- providence let's pray Lord we thank you we thank you that you endured the storm of the cross for stubborn and scared and confused and miserable messed up sin stained and storm-tossed people like us and that because you did we have a standing in your grace and with that lord our greatest desire in this moment is to have you pour out your comfort and your courage into our hardened and weary and empty souls so encourage us lord guard us and guide us when we don't know the way when we can't sense your presence or purpose. When the sky is dark, we pray for humility and conviction and strength to yield ourselves more completely to you for your loving purpose and the glory of your kingdom. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.